this is compounding. We talk about the miracle of compound interest. And I think the mm. compounding effects of this crisis, frankly, not just on your financial life, not just on your professional life, but on your personal life as well. Um, you know, I'm, I'm 30. I don't own a home. I'm not in a relationship. I don't have children. And, you know, that's, that's, that's a problem. <laughs> that's, you know, you look at, you I, I'm older, <laughs> I'm older. And I would say the same thing. And, and I hate to say this, but as much as I would love to be married and have a little, I, I don't think that that would happen here in the way like, I don't think that the lifestyle I imagine and the life I would want to have would even be possible here uh, because of cost and, and other, other factors. It's just, it just is not necessarily, uh, it doesn't make sense to a certain degree. And that's crazy to say. Yeah. And, you know, it's people have their opinions about Elon Musk, but, you know, he, he talks about population decline and the challenge is going to pose to the economy. And he's really not wrong. Um, he's wrong you know, about a lot of things, but, but maybe not about that one. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you just, you need not to go like too deep into these, but you need so many people to be reproduced, to make up for the difference of the people who are dying out of the system. And they need to be consumers who spend money and then buy things. And, you know, so long as we're not buying homes, we're not, you know, buying cars like we used to, we're not going on vacation to Disney world. Like that's yeah but gonna... disney world's 145 dollars a ticket or something insane. Uh, it's insane i'm not it's doing insane. that I'm, i refuse i refuse <gasps> well, I do so. I do too. but it's just like you know that that's what our economy is it's a consumer economy so either we change that we change the economy and create something new or we give ourselves a better way to consume and that's kind of where we're at and the student loan issue is really uh hampering hampering the ladder for a lot of people <laughs> If you're looking for some guidance on what to do with your student loans and you need an outside perspective on what your options are, Student Loan Planner may be the resource for you. Schedule a paid consultation with one of Student Loan Planner's student loan consultants who will walk you through what your options are. Student Loan Planner has a 99% satisfaction rate and a whole person-focused approach when helping their clients. If you're worried about saving for retirement, going on vacation, and the impact of your student loan repayment on those goals, Student Loan planner consultants understand and respect those concerns and keep that in mind while working with you. Please note, if you're listening to this episode in 2022, you have until October 31st, 2022 to submit your public service loan forgiveness waiver. I've also included a link in the show notes. I'm proud to partner with Student Loan Planner. And if you're interested in scheduling your student loan paid consultation, go to the following link, michelleismoneyhungry.com backslash student loan plan. Finally, I would like to thank the Plutus Foundation for its support of the Michelle is Money Hungry podcast. The Plutus Foundation supports financial content creators with grants, networking, learning events, and podcasts. Twice a year, Plutus provides grants for financial literacy projects of all types. The foundation highlights excellence throughout the Plutus Awards, and you can see how you can make a bigger impact with your audience at Plutus Voices and the Plutus Impact Summit. Go to PlutusFoundation.org for more information. Please note, Michelle is Money Hungry is for entertainment purposes only. Content should not be considered financial advice, and listeners are encouraged to do their own due diligence. Welcome to Michelle is Money Hungry, a podcast that has real and empathetic conversations that often focus on the intersection of policy and the financial conversations we're really afraid to have. I'm your host, Michelle Jackson, and this summer, I'm having conversations 
all about the potential for student loan forgiveness and what will happen if we move forward with the policy and what happens if we don't. Amanda and I'm a writer, entrepreneur, and something of an adventurer. And I write about money and life over at Millionaire by Next Year. I want to hear about the adventures. I, I feel like that's a good way to start. So after college, I won a scholarship and lived in the Middle East for a year. Um, and then I worked several jobs uh, when I started my career in Washington, D.C. Uh, in the Middle East. And then last year, I spent, I want to say nine months uh, driving my Subaru Outback around the country. I literally drive, drove around the entire country. And next week I'm actually hitting the road again and I'm about to live in my Subaru Outback again, full-time down in Texas. That is so awesome. I feel like summer in Texas though is really hot. How are you gonna manage that piece of the adventure? That is something I'm about to find out. So we'll see. <laughs> I hope you go to Marfa. That's like one of my dream locations to visit. If it's not on your list, when we get offline, I'll talk about Marfa because I'm obsessed with it. So I went there actually last <gasps> year and it was delightful. I saw the Prada store. It was oh. wonderful. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm very weirdly obsessed with <laughs> And I want to stay at the El Cosmico. Like that's the place. But that's not this conversation. But I do want to touch on something out of your opening comments, which was you you lived overseas and you lived in the Middle East. And I worked with international students for 10 years um, at a university studying English as a second language. And a lot of the students that I worked with came from the Gulf, from Gulf nations. And one of the things that, and these were people like 17 to 65 because it was a language program. And one of the things that really stood out to me was how the how their countries invested in their education. So basically the, the bulk of these students from the Gulf and quite frankly, Angola from Africa, some African countries and some other countries as well, but I'm talking Qatar, Oman, Kuwait, Saudi Arabia in particular, their countries paid for their students to come overseas to study for undergrad, grad, PhD level, master's level programs. They paid for their accommodation, housing, fund stipends, travel stipend. They paid for literally everything. And so I bring this up to ask when you were living in whichever place that you were overseas, what were some of the things that you noticed in terms of the conversations around education and U.S., the cost of education in the U.S.? Like, did, did that ever, like, in expat communities come up? Or was there ever a moment where, where people were like, what's what's going on with that? Or uh, And I've lived abroad, so, so I have definitely had that experience. So I'm curious about yourself. Yeah. So I actually lived in Jordan um, and I did not live in the capital city of Oman, which is where most uh, U.S. students actually go to study. I lived in um, Urbid, which is in the north, pretty close to Syrian border. And because I was living outside of the expat bubble, I really got to live within the, the community in Jordan. And what was really interesting uh, for me to observe is um, you're spot on that a lot of other countries really do invest 
in students' education, and especially a lot of countries that you would probably consider not even as wealthy. So on my campus, there was a lot of students from Malaysia um, and Indonesia that were studying abroad. But what was really interesting for me to personally observe was the sheer number of Syrian refugees who had transferred from their schools in Syria and who had come to Jordan because obviously uh, this was 2013. So the civil war was um, really, really raging. So a lot of people had to relocate. And the ease at which that they were able to do that and where cost, at least from, from my vantage point, people don't really talk about money um, over there the same way we do here. It's, it's kind of a little taboo, uh, especially for women. So I didn't really get to, you know, dive down into the, the number crunching, but at least from, from the perspective that I had, the cost of education was just significantly cheaper um, compared to the cost here in the U.S. And just seeing that the, the sheer number of students who were able to transfer over and to continue their studies uninterrupted is really a testament to how, I, I would say, fluid other educational systems are compared to the U.S. I just, I think here in the U.S., if we had, you know, something similar, even with COVID, I think COVID is a good example. You know, I think a lot of students were pressed with a similar challenge of, you know, do I continue my studies or, or do I stop? Is this worth the cost? Um, over there, it's not a matter of cost. It's um, I would say more of a matter of status and honor and, you know, learning is a tool uh, people use to uh, move their families forward in the culture and society, whereas we, I feel like here, we really use education as a means to an end, and usually that end is, is financial. So I, I would say um, the cost really took a secondary or tertiary seat in the thought process of how students really uh, engage with their education where, where I was living in Jordan. I am jealous about Jordan because Petra is one of my, I know that it's, it's like way too many tourists going there, but that is a dream location for me to visit. And I've only heard amazing things about Jordan and the food in particular, the people. I, I am kind of living vicariously through your memories, super geeked out about it. Um, that said, I, I'm curious, how, why did you start your website? What was the impetus around that? It, was there just a hey, I've got time to do this major project <laughs> or uh, were you, was there a specific topic that you really wanted to explore? Could you share a little bit about uh, the genesis of your uh, personal finance brand? Yeah, so I started it in 2019. I was still working as a defense contractor um, with the Department of Defense and I actually had a a quote unquote, like real business at the time. Um, I had co-founded an oat milk company uh, in Washington, D.C. So I was kind of doing all of that at once and, and decided to start my personal finance blog. And uh, the logic behind it was one, I'm, I've always been a good writer and I really loved writing. And I found working um, in all of the nine to five jobs I've ever worked, I've found that that talent has been really suppressed to the point where people just tell me to stop writing and they don't give me opportunities to really leverage that. And so I, I found it as a creative outlet for me me to really develop a writing style that's not academic, that's not based on, you know, what we learned in college, but is something that's meaningful and personal to me. So that was the first reason I started it. And then the, the second reason is, you know, I really wanted 
to learn, to learn how to build a business, to learn how to do stuff digitally. And I found that, you know, a website and a blog is really a great crucible for, for learning all sorts of different skills that are really valuable um, in today's economy. And, you know, at the, at the time I was really struggling with my finances. I had gone on the, the Dave Ramsey train and started learning about personal finance that way and kind of gone down a huge rabbit hole and was learning about new concepts around like financial independence and the fire movement and the 4% rule and all of this stuff. So I created the, the website, particularly in, in the finance niche to really be a, a testament to my learning of, of all this new content that I was learning about because you're, you're not taught finance in school unless you take, you know, a course in, in finance, you're not going to learn anything. So it, it was really a way for me to, you know, learn the content, apply it to my own life, but then also, you know, leverage my writing skills and try to dabble, if you will, um, and learning how to build something on the internet that I owned and, and could, you know, gain value from. I brought you on this show uh, because we're very gracious. Uh, you were gracious enough to share your thoughts and, and viewpoints around the potential for a student loan forgiveness program. And weirdly enough, today there was a lot of increased chatter around the actual amount that the Biden administration seems to be looking at in terms of if they move forward with this policy. And right now it's looking to be around $10,000. Before we get into that part of the conversation, when someone brings up student loan forgiveness as a policy, what are some of your concerns or some of the things that you think are ideal about, like, just share your thoughts about this as a potential financial policy and, and some of the impact that it could have, good or bad? Yeah, I think the biggest thing that no one is really talking about that really underpins the entirety of a policy like this is the morality of debt. And this whole conversation of who is responsible for what and what is owed and, and why. And, and I say that because there's always talk, like, like you had noted with you know the 10,000 figure, there's always talk about a certain dollar amount to be allocated or to certain kinds of schools. I think we've already seen some uh, in the for-profit space that were already forgiven. So there's so much conversation um, just trying to cherry pick who gets what and, and when and where. And underpinning all of that is this conversation about who deserves what type of forgiveness and why. And it's really this conversation about debt morality. And, and I think that's important when you look at it from a policy perspective, because we're in such a politically charged uh, world right now that any policy that will be passed is going to include some sort of moral underpinning to it that a lot of people were seeing on, on the far right and the far uh, left are gonna be vehemently opposed to for different reasons. Um, you know, I've seen some folks who are arguing, you know, this is kind of where, where I sit is, you know, just forgive it, I'll get rid of it. There's a lot of problems with how student loans were issued and how they're administered in the entire uh, higher education system. Let's just start with a clean slate. But there's another side of people who say, well, you know, maybe we decided not to go to college. We were prudent with our financial choices or, you know, maybe we went to a low cost college that we didn't want to go to and, uh, you know, decided not to go to the college we wanted to because we made the better financial choice. And, you know, there's people who already have paid off their loans and, you know, they have legitimate questions that they need to ask about, well, we already did it. We, again, did the right thing shouldn't we get something out of this? So there's a whole 
conversation that isn't really being had about the morality of all of this. And unfortunately, I think that's where a lot of success or failure in, in the student loan forgiveness space is going to lie is, you know, it's kind of putting aside the emotional charges to it and figuring out what is best for the economy, assigning a dollar figure to it and just moving forward and starting fresh. I have never even thought about this from this ethical, you got me really excited about this idea. So could you repeat what you called this, this ethical dilemma, the moral yeah. dilemma. Yeah. It's a, it's a question of debt morality. So debt this- morality. Okay. So here's the thing, Amanda, this is the reason why I got, I stuttered and that kind of thing is no one has ever brought this up before. I think they've kind of hinted around it, but they've never phrased it in such a way. And one of the things that I think about is not only debt morality, um, as you've, you, as you've coined it, I'm going to say you've coined it for this conversation. I also think about all the other things that I pay for as a U.S. citizen that I may or may not agree with, right? Like there's a lot of things that I am not excited about that I've paid for through via tax dollars. Like my my $72 allocated out of whatever thousands that I've paid in a year. And so I say this in the sense that why is it that people silo their their anger around the policy? So they're mad that there's going to be student loan forgiveness, but what about all the other things that they pay for that they may not really agree with? It just feels kind of like a half-assed anger. Sometimes I feel like it's appropriate that we contribute to the war effort in Ukraine. Personally, I feel like that is, that is something that I'm not unopposed to. However, because we are paying for that, I also have moments where I'm like, why the hell can't we pay to help our own people and pay off their debt. You know what I mean? Like I, I, I get frustrated that these arguments are very siloed to the point where people aren't even thinking about all the other things that they've paid for that have benefited or not their own lives. People pay for sidewalks, you know, they pay yeah. for roads. So I don't know where I'm going with this. You can, you just go with it. Yeah. 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 No, I just was where you're going. Yeah. And, and I think it's, it's not even just, you know, what we're paying for, but it's also how we're showing up in the economy that's been constructed around us. I think most of us don't really consider the fact that we didn't design this economy. We didn't vote on these processes and these like yeah yes yeah, so, okay we go to the elections and and we vote on things but we're not voting on you know how much taxes were being charged right like no one has been given a vote to say okay this group of people you're going to pay 22 percent a year while this group of people you're going to pay one percent a year like we have never been given any sort of vote or say in how we participate in our economy. And, you know, one thing I I think about now um, that's really come to an issue is, you know, I'm moving back into my Subaru Outback full time. And a reason for that is the housing market right now. You know, there is just no housing that's affordable for a variety of reasons. I don't want to be a homeowner. I don't want to deal with property taxes. I don't want to deal with maintenance. But at the same time, you know, I can't really justify renting, you know, spending two, three, four thousand dollars a month to live in a place that a 
affords me a job just so I can afford the rent, just so I can go to the job. It's just the, the logic there is just so absurd to me that I just can't wrap my mind around it. And, you know, one of the things um, kind of going back to the debt morality concept that has really liberated me over the last year or so is realizing that I'm not always at fault for the financial decisions I've made. And, and what I mean by that and, and kind of tying it back into housing is that when I lived in Washington, D.C., I constantly moved uh, from apartment to apartment chasing the lowest rent. So I did my job. I did what I needed to do to make sure I could afford rent. I think I lived there for six years and I think I had five different addresses over a six year period. I've never lived in, a, in the same place for probably more than 18 months. So constantly moving all the time is really stressful. And what I've recently learned is, you know, no, that wasn't my fault. I wasn't a bad manager of my finances. I was working in an economy where wages have stagnated. You know, you can look at any you know, map or uh, chart on Google and you can see how wages have flatlined, regardless of whether or not you have a college degree, wages have flatlined. Meanwhile, things like the cost of education have gone up and the cost of housing has gone up. And one of the things we do to bridge the divide, especially for women who are still not paid a dollar for dollar compared to uh, men who, you know, we do the same work as, you know, we have to bridge the gap with something. We need some sort of financial instrument to be able to still pay rent and, you know, buy food. And more often than not, than not that comes down to credit and, and credit cards. So, you know, I, I look at my own financial situation and, you know, a lot of people have told me, well, I'm, I'm to blame. I made the wrong choices. And I've started to think about it. Well, no, what if I actually didn't what if the housing market put me in a situation where you know I had to choose between paying 50% of my take-home pay on my rent versus 75% of my take-home pay you know what if I chose a job and I didn't realize I was being paid less than everyone else in my field um, and so so that's really why I think the debt morality concept is really important to think about from a student loan forgiveness perspective is because we've really emotionally charged the conversation without thinking about the macroeconomic world we're living in and kind of how this all relates to everything we, we do in our lives. We, we, like you said, silo ourselves and, you know, we, we don't think of how things are really interrelated. And I think there's just, there's a, a different game that we're part of and we're playing. I don't think we really realize it. And until we discharge and eliminate the emotional tone to a lot of these conversations, we're really not going to be able to objectively see what is happening in our economy and then come up with the solutions and the policies we need to, to really solve the problem. One of the things that's really interesting to observe in the conversations that I've had with some of my guests is they're pretty consistently frustrated with the cost of education in the U.S. If you were the head of the Department of Education, what would be some of the things that you would do to, to work on this problem so that we don't find ourselves in this situation again? Say, to, say tomorrow we get student loan forgiveness, blanket forgiveness, what have you, but there's still students who are currently in college now. What are some of the things that you would suggest we do in order to kind of have this fresh slate and make sure that people are on a fair playing field when it comes to managing the cost of education and student loans and you can kind of run with it? Yeah, I, I think the, the question, this is probably going to anger a lot of people, but I, I think that the question isn't a matter of 
you know, how do you make college cheaper? How do you adjust the cost? I think we have to go down to, is college actually sufficient anymore? And, and what I mean by that is our college process as it exists today is totally divorced from the workforce. You're not learning skills in college anymore that translate to jobs. Um, you know, if you look at tech, that's a really great example. Kids aren't going to college and learning, you know, computer code and then going to get jobs at Google or Microsoft or Facebook. You know, the kids who are coming out of college are getting those jobs a lot of times because of the pedigree of the school they went to. And what I mean by that is, is the brand, you know, you could study, you know, an apple to apple degree, say, you know, computer science, you could study computer science at the University of North Dakota or Stanford. And just based on proximity to Silicon Valley and the brand of Stanford, you're going to have a lot more success in being able to obtain employment that's going to compensate for the cost of education than someone from, you know, the University of North Dakota. And meanwhile, this is happening while a lot of these new big tech companies are coming out with new credentialing criteria to hire employees outside of the college system. So Google now has its own certification program where you can become certified in certain job functions that Google needs employees to fill, uh, regardless of whether or not you go to college. And so I think, you know, we actually need to take a step back and not focus so much on making college affordable, but start asking ourselves, why are we going to college in the first place, especially now when we are living in a, a big tech world and, you know, tech companies are the primary employers and they're driving a lot of the high paying jobs in our country. And they're now creating their own in-house educational credentialing programs. You know, does it even matter to go to college anymore? And, and it, you know, I, I read headlines sometimes and I think uh, kids are starting to realize this, um, but I, I really do think we need to have a, a conversation about it. And again, stop making college this moral thing that we must do to move up in the world and start objectively looking at the workforce and the world as it is and see what things we can do without a college education to start training kids to be part of the workforce of tomorrow. If you were asked to to design a student loan forgiveness program, what would be three things you would would do? And then the second part of that question is, if you were in charge of issuing student loans, what are some of the things you would do to make sure that students don't inadvertently find themselves in the situation that many folks find themselves in right now? Well, I'll start with the second question first. Um, so the, the big thing is making student loans a collateral-based lending product. And, and what I mean by that is if you wanted to go buy a car or if you want to go buy a house, the process and the scrutiny to purchase either of those assets is a lot more rigorous than getting a loan to go to college. I was 17 when I went to college. I had no financial literacy. I was a first generation college kid. So my parents couldn't help me either. And so navigating that process was really difficult. And looking back, I, I see how problematic that is because um, kind of what I was saying before about everything being tied to future employment and income in the workforce is that there's nothing underpinning your student loan debt. There's no asset. It's totally unsecured. And so you or I could go tomorrow to a bank and we could ask for an unsecured personal loan and we would either get denied or we would have to show a lot of 
income and, and proof of employment and just a lot of paperwork to demonstrate our quality and our ability to get that loan. But, you know, the same isn't the case for, for student loans. So I think, you know, that's the first thing we really need to do. Now, your question about the, the three things I, I would require. The first thing, and people might not agree with this, but I would require some sort of service requirement for anyone getting student loan uh, forgiveness. And I, I say this as a condition because I think there's just a lot of problems in the country right now. You know, don't need to go into details about it, but I think there's a lot of problems in terms of how we otherize each other and we don't really see each other as people. And I think, you know, some sort of national service program, I think President uh, Obama might have actually recommended um, something like this at some point, but I think some sort of program should be a condition of forgiveness. I will happily go, go volunteer for a year or whatever to get my student loans <laughs> forgiven. So I, I think that's that's one, one thing we can do. Another thing we can do to make it as objective as possible is to just give a blanket forgiveness, um, not put all of these qualifiers attached to it, because then it creates you know, that us versus them mindset. And, you know, there is historic precedent for this. I cite history in college, so I'm a, I'm a bit of a nerd, but, um, you know, if you go way, way back to, you know, biblical times, there's precedent for what were called debt jubilees, where after so many years, debt was forgiven in ancient Babylonia. Hammurabi, which is one of the most, I think, famous and, and well-known leaders that came out of that empire, he wiped away debt to win political favor from his constituents. So, you know, that, that, that's an option. Um, but more recently in Iceland, following the financial collapse of 2008, the government there, I, I forget the, the exact percentage, but they eliminated a substantial amount of people's mortgages. They just wiped them clean. So there is precedent. It can be done. It's just a matter of, of willingness. So I would give everyone the same equity wipe their slates clean and, and let's move on. The third thing I would do, I don't know. That's a really, I think service is, is, is super important, but maybe, maybe participation in, in, you know, local communities, because I think, I think that's something we're also really starting to lose. And I think it is actually tied to the student loan picture writ large. Um, a lot of people had to move to bigger cities to get the jobs they needed to get to afford to pay back the loans. And we've lost the sense of community. So I, I don't know if there's a way to like tie in some sort of localized civic engagement into a student loan forgiveness program, but I would, I would add that requirement as well. And I have one last question along this topic, which is what should we be thinking about in terms of folks who are currently in school now? I feel like I've made a mistake in not pushing that question enough with my other guests. So I definitely want to ask you this question. Um, what are your thoughts about a freshman, junior, senior, grad level student, what have you, like the people who are still, who are currently in the system now, what, what does the future look like for them if if we move forward with a student loan policy, how can we make sure that they're okay as they move through the process that they're in now? Yeah, I, I think that's on us. So all of us who have now exited the, the system who are, you know, anything from one year to 20 years out, I think it's on us to really be as transparent as we can with the younger generation who's in school now. And what I mean by that is pay transparency. I think that's super important because a lot of students, especially freshmen and sophomores, are making decisions based on future employment prospects that is totally opaque to them. They have no idea what the job market is like. They don't know what they're gonna be compensated. And so they don't have the access to the information 
they're going to need to make the right decisions. And, you know, it's, it's hard if you're a, a junior or senior because you're most of the way through, but if you're a freshman or sophomore, you still have time to leave. If, if, if that's what you're choosing, that's what you feel is right for you. You still have time to leave or you have time to, you may maybe take fewer academic courses and focus on, you know, a Google certification or a UX bootcamp or, or something that will actually lead to, to a job um, once you do graduate. So I, I really think it's on us as, you know, listeners and um, as members of the society to be as transparent as we can with our wages, because the more opacity that is out there and the less transparency we have with what the job market actually looks like, the more it's going to hurt the younger generation coming up because they they can't make informed decisions. And I, you know, if, if history is any indicator of the past, I don't know that the people who are supposed to help them make the decisions are going to help them because they didn't help my generation, right? So I, I don't think that's going to change anything at all. You know, if, if they really wanted to help us, you know, at least my experience, I went to a good school, but you know, there's a lot of things I would do differently. And, you know, I, there was not a lot of mentoring on the job front. There wasn't a lot of preparation. There weren't as many, you know, job fairs. I, you know, this is a funny aside because um, I, I later interviewed with them when I was living in, in DC, but I had no idea what Deloitte was. If, oh. if you had told, if you had told me not, I come from a working class family, right? So if you had right. told me my senior year of college to, um, you know, interview with a big four firm, I would have had no idea who you were talking about or what that even meant or how to get a job like that. Um, and so, you know, even like knowing that people paid interns, again, I started my career in Washington, D.C. back in 2014, uh, interns still weren't being paid. And so I had no idea that there was companies like PricewaterhouseCoopers or KPMG or even JP Morgan that I could have worked for, right? And still applied my, what I say in college into a career field where I would have gotten compensated. So I really do think it's, it's on all of us to make sure we're um, mentoring the younger generation, doing what we can, because I, I don't think the institutional powers that, that be are going to do it for them. I want to say something about this, this thread of, of the conversation, which is so, so interesting to me. So I am Gen X and we are definitely the first generation that got slammed with increased college costs and these loans and things like that. And one of the things that I will be candid in saying, especially after having shared what school I went to, you, you know where I went, I didn't get any career advising about what was after school. I didn't. I, I did not. And I went to a very, very good school, as you know. I didn't get any advice on internship programs. I didn't get any. All I did in college was go to college because because the the way I was talked to um, by everyone was go to college and get an education, you'll get a good job. But that is different from saying you're going to go into this specific field of study <laughs> and the amount of money that you pay, you should earn a certain return on investment. If you go and become a doctor, it's expensive, but you're going to be making you know, three, 400 plus a year. Cause I have several doctor friends and they, they, the return is really good. If you complete your studies, I never had that conversation. I was the first to go. I wasn't the first to go to college, but I was the first to go to college in a tradition in quote unquote, the traditional sense that you see on TV, where you go to like the dorm and, you, you know, stay in a dorm and things like that. And so part of the reason why I'm doing this show is that there are a lot of people that I know that are still dealing with this situation from years ago 
because they, they got slammed and then they had families and then they had obligations and then they, like it, it, it snowballed. And I don't want other people younger than me to have to deal with what I've seen people dealing with. I also don't want people my age or older in the having the experience of having to still deal with student loans or not having some kind of freedom from this obligation. So I think your point that <laughs> there's no conversation around, okay, well, you're going to, you're going to borrow this money, but are you going to get the return is, is spot on. Yeah. And just to, to add on that too, you know, for me, I was taught, um, it wasn't just getting the education, but performing well. Um, and so I really did go above and beyond to perform well. Um, yeah. and, and, in high school, I kid you not, I took advanced placement courses where I literally read the textbook and sat for the exam. I didn't have a formal course, no, no classes. I just sat for the class and got the college credit. Um, and so I actually started college as a sophomore because of that. And while I was in college, I just kept adding majors. So Depending on who you ask, I've had an interesting career, college career because of um, the scholarship I mentioned that I wanted to study language in the Middle East, but I've officially graduated with three, had enough uh, credits for four majors, um, and I graduated summa cum laude with a you know, pretty good GPA, and you know, the thing that I think it's important for people to realize is that means nothing in the real world, and that really, that hurt me, not just financially, um, but emotion, emotionally and mentally too, which, you know, how you show up for yourself is how you show up for your job, and that's how you're compensated, um, mm. and, and you know, for me, it's, I really, really struggled with that for the longest time to the point where I was really questioning why I was on earth to even begin with um, yeah. because it, it you know we're taught that there's a meritocracy and if you work hard enough and if you perform hard enough and you, and you get the grades that you're going to succeed and that is not true that is you know in, in my experience that really is is not true um, you're not rewarded for your how, how, how hard you study, um, you're rewarded for who, you know, or who your family knows or where you went to school, not what you studied in school. Um, and, and so that's really something I think people need to contend with, especially if you're coming out of a, a quote unquote flyover state where you don't have access to the cultural and financial and technological capitals of America. Or if you're like me and you come from a, you know, working class family where you just don't know the social norms of, you know, working class people, you know, for me, I didn't know how to network. And that's really how a lot of high paying jobs are earned. You don't go to indeed.com and apply for jobs. Like at some point, like that becomes irrelevant. There's this entire, I would say, hidden network of, of jobs where it's, you know, jobs are awarded based on tea times at golf courses between certain people or, you know, drinking brandy and smoking cigars at, you know, a gentleman's club, you know, after, after work hours, like that's how a lot of jobs are doled out these days. It's more who you know, and a college degree really isn't going to, to solve this. I'm, I'm really, I'm with you as well. Like, you know, there's a lot of people who this is compounding. We talk about the miracle of compound interest. And I think the mm. compounding effects of this crisis frankly, not just on your financial life, not just on your professional life, but on your personal life as well. Um, you know, I'm, I'm 30. I don't own a home. I'm not in a relationship. I don't have children. And you know, that's, that, that's a problem. <laughs> that's, you know, you look at, you I, I'm older, I'm older and I would say the same thing. And, and I hate to say this, but as much as I would love to be married and have a little, I, I don't think that that would happen here in the way 
like, I don't think that the lifestyle I imagine and the life I would want to have would even be possible here uh, because of cost and, and other, other factors. It's just, it just is not necessarily, uh, it doesn't make sense to a certain degree. And that's crazy to say. Yeah. And, you know, it's people have their opinions about Elon Musk, but, you know, he, he talks about population decline and the challenges going to pose to the economy. And he's really not wrong. Um, he's wrong about a lot of things, but but maybe not about that one. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you just, you need not to go like too deep into these, but you need so many people to be reproduced, to make up for the difference of the people who are dying out of the system. And they need to be consumers who spend money and then buy things. And, you know, so long as we're not buying homes, we're not, you know, buying cars like we used to, we're not going on vacation to Disney world. Like that's yeah but gonna... disney world's 145 a ticket or something insane. Uh, it's insane i'm not it's doing insane. that I'm, i refuse i refuse <laughs> well, I, do so. too. I do too but it's just like you know that that's what our economy is it's a consumer economy so either we change that we change the economy and create something new or we give ourselves a better way to consume and that's kind of where we're at and the student loan issue is really uh hampering hampering the ladder for a lot of people <laughs> this is going to be the last not question but I'm I'm just going to muse about something which is I wonder what would have happened during COVID if the administration hadn't paused the student loans where would people be financially now like imagine where that money would be going versus where it's going now and part of the reason why I think there's a lot of angst around the policy is that people are still struggling even though their loans are paused. And that's something that I don't think enough people talk about. You're spot on. Um, Yeah, I think that is the elephant in the room that no one is talking about. The fact that people are still struggling despite a pause really tells you where things are at. And, you know, again, is it a, a question of morality? Did we all make the wrong choices and believe in, you know, that, the, that we were all going to get these mythical high paying jobs that don't really exist? Or is there really something else uh, that's wrong with the, the system that we really need to fix on a, on a structural level. Um, and I think, I think people really, and this is why I, I say we have to be objective as possible because we have to look at it that way to solve the problem um, because it really is, uh, you know, we've gotten, we've, we've gotten to the point now where it's not even just like, I can't go buy my latte. It's, I can't afford <laughs> to put a roof over my head. Like I, I can't, I can't pay for gas unless I use Klarna. Yeah, people are using pay, pay now, buy now, pay Pay later later, for gas. Yeah. And actually that industry is doing very badly right now. So Mm -hmm. that, that option is probably going to contract. So um, I think that we've, we've, we've had a conversation. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Um, I am going to Google debt jubilees. I do remember Iceland, uh, and, and some of the things that they did, I feel like there was one other policy that they did around the debt forgiveness. I I forgot about the mortgage part. So I I really appreciate you bringing that up. And I so excited for you to share your adventures in the Subaru. I think it's going to be super exciting. If you could share where we can find you and, and follow what you're up to, that would be fantastic. 
yeah all my social handles are millionaire by next year so google google me instagram me uh just don't tiktok me i don't use tiktok um <laughs> but yeah you can find me there <laughs> okay 